2: Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is Nathan Gilmore coming at you from Franklin Springs, Georgia at Emmanuel College. I'm an associate professor of English here, and I'm joined on the line this fine afternoon by Dr. David Grubbs. He's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. How are things, David?
0: Pretty decent. Can't complain. Shouldn't anyway.
2: Right on. And also on the line this morning, we've got Dr. Michael Farmer. He is an uh, no. He's an assistant professor of English. I just promoted you, Michael, uh, you. at Crown College in Saint Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, how have you been, Michael?
1: Pretty good, all things considered. You know, semester's almost over, so that will be nice. Yours ended three weeks ago, I assume.
2: Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. We. Uh, <laughs> I've taught two semesters since then, actually. Um. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's in the year twenty-five twenty-five now.
2: That's right. That is how fast the Emanuel calendar goes. Uh, Trying to think, uh, this morning, as we are recording, uh, I posted a new uh, sectarian review. uh, And I really should remember what these things are on. Do you guys remember seeing that?
0: Yes.
1: It is on um, that new movie. It's about... Ready
2: Player One. That's the one. Thank you. Now I remember. Uh, what else is going on around the network, guys? Uh, David, you uh, got a profiles interview in, and it looks like it's another esoteric theological matter.
0: Naturally, uh, a, a interview with Fred Sanders about the uh, the volume on eternal generation that he edited with Scott Swain, and that was a, a good a good conversation as always. Uh, love to love to talk to fred sanders he's he's just uh fun, one of one of the one of the, our uh i think now are officially our our most interviewed guest if i'm counting correctly christian how can... many are you
2: up to because i've got four nt rights
0: uh, i think this may be his fifth but uh I'll, I, I, would, I think that wins i would have to go recount <laughs> so you know shades of 2000
2: right on and Michael, I don't know if you mentioned it last week or not, but I wasn't here, so I'm going to ask, uh, how did the uh, episode on the latest uh, package film go over on uh, Before They Were Live?
1: Went pretty well, although we are ready to be done with the package films, and I apologize for the tornado siren behind me. There is no tornado. I don't know what that siren is for.
2: Right on. I didn't even hear it, so hopefully oh, I won't either. Maybe none of the either. listeners do either. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, that's what's going on around the network, uh, listeners, uh, I do apologize that I'm back. Uh, Christina Beaverlake, I'm sure, is more erudite and amusing than I am, but you are stuck with me. Uh, and today, uh, we're going to talk about a piece, uh, in April's Atlantic Magazine. Uh, this is a sort of sub-genre that's, uh, been popping up around the internet the last, you know, 20 months, give or take. Uh, and it's about the, uh, well, we're going to talk about what it's about, so, uh, The article itself is called, and i got to pull up the title here, The Last Temptation. And it it doesn't have to do with, uh, you know, any Kazantzakis novels or anything like that. It has to do with Evangelicals and Donald Trump. And Michael, in some ways, uh, Gerson's piece is the latest in the cottage industry of lamenting first and then explaining white Evangelicals' embrace of Donald Trump over the last two or three years. So, I mean, let's start with this essay's relationship to the subgenre. What kinds of things in this piece are kind of standard for these kinds of articles, and does Gerson add anything to the ongoing inquiry?
1: I, I, I will confess that because I was off uh, social media for most of Lent, I don't really, uh, I haven't read any of these in a while. But from my limited experience, this would seem to be less hostile to evangelicals and even less hostile to Trump supporting evangelicals than some of the pieces I've read. I think um, Gerson really tries to assume the best about them, except when he finds that impossible, as he occasionally does. He also wants to defend the idea of evangelicalism itself rather than just jettisoning it, as many evangelicals do, including myself, by the way. He gives a very thorough history of evangelical politics going all the way back to the 19th century. I think that's different than many of the other pieces we've read. Uh, He offers very little criticism of liberals. Many essays like this also talk about uh, the Democratic Party's responsibility for the election of Trump. We don't get that here. Um, and that brings me to a point, which is that it's difficult for me to determine who the audience of this essay is. The The Atlantic is about as moderate as magazines get. So I wonder if he is writing to explain evangelical failures to secular liberals, or is he trying to criticize evangelicals to their face? I don't have a very good sense of that. Do you?
2: I don't know. And a question just occurs to me when uh, that Alan Jacobs piece we did a while back, Was that an Atlantic piece or Harper's or what magazine was that for?
1: That was Harper's.
2: Okay. So, I mean, I, you know, Harper's obviously a little bit more, uh, partisan in its leanings, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting, Michael. I mean, when I think of the Atlantic, I mean, I do think of a sort of secular college educated kind of audience. Uh, when I read the Atlantic, I read it as kind of someone on the outside looking in, if you will. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I do, I do see this as, you know, someone from inside that conservative evangelical George W. Bush world, you know, basically confessing, if you will, uh, to the folks on the other side of that divide saying, you know, okay, this is our thing. We own it. uh, You know, we're not trying to blame anyone else, but this is at least an explanation for why these things happen the way they did. I mean, David, is that kind of the sense that you get?
0: Something somewhere between a Jeremiah and a confession, yeah, Um, you know, possibly of the of the sort that's meant to, um, meant to start the chain reaction. Um, The uh, the first one, you know, being you know one of one of the people who will stand up and and you know admit this is what happened, so that others can can admit it too. Um, Except, uh, I, I don't know that. Necessarily, the, the the folks that he might be calling to repentance are necessarily going to be among the demographic that gets that reads it in the Atlantic. But you know, it's on the internet. It's been linked. It's been tweeted around, and all the rest of it. So um, you know, the 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 original subscriber list is no, is uh, no, no longer contain it contains the readership.
2: Yeah, that makes some sense. And I mean, a couple details, readers, just in case uh, you didn't get to take a look at it when we link to it on the Facebook page and whatnot. And we will provide a link as well on the show notes. But I mean, this is uh, Michael Gerson. He was uh, George W. Bush's uh, chief speechwriter. Uh, he's also a Wheaton alum. So I mean, this is someone definitely from within, you know, that sort of religious right evangelical camp. I mean, in fact, as close to the heart of that camp as it's possible to be. Uh, so, I mean, when we say that this is someone, you know, confessing to a secular audience, I mean, at at least I mean that, you know, I mean, he's not someone that they would necessarily consider one of their own, uh, but rather he would, you know, he would be considered part of them, if you will, that little string of pronouns didn't work out real well, but I mean, does that make some sense, Michael?
1: It does. Yeah.
2: All right. Well, David, I mean, I want to focus for a moment on what Michael pointed up, uh, the history of American evangelicalism that Gerson lays down. Um, What features does he highlight as most relevant to this recent turn to Trump? And would you characterize his history as more penitent, more self-justifying, or something completely different?
0: Beginning with uh, the 19th century, like Michael said, uh, the picture that he paints of American Protestant Christianity is one that is more uh, upbeat, uh, one that is uh, more socially socially active, uh, more interested in uh, the sorts of reforms that will re- re- uh, relieve kind of you know so tangible social miseries. So. Um, uh, relief uh, of the poor, um, reforms for health, uh, things like that, and and this is this he sees as uh, in the 19th century uh, a trajectory that's set by the abolitionist movement uh, in in the North because that's that especially is his uh, is is his target early in this history. Then uh, then comes the late 19th early 20th century especially early 20th century with things like the scopes trial uh, the rise of higher criticism uh, but also uh, the the post-civil war and then world war one growing sense of despondence Uh, one of the things he identified as a source of 19th century american christian optimism uh, is that he identifies them as mainly premillennial uh, as those who believe that the church, through its ad- advancement and, and gradual improvement of the worlds it's in, will will eventually uh, uh, clear everything up, make everything better. And then Jesus will come back to a kingdom that we've essentially won for him.
1: Just to correct you real quick, David, yeah. you are mm-hmm. you are describing post-millennialism, which, which is I'm sorry. Uh, what he says is yeah.
0: dominant. I'm sorry. I r I, I had pre millennial written later down in my notes and I read that word instead of the word that I should have read.
1: So close your email, everybody.
0: Yeah, postmillennial is what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, all all you premillennials I know I, I know I know what you think. Um so yeah, post millennials. Uh that seemed less tenable. Uh, in the wake of the Civil War, even less tenable after the Great War. Uh, so, uh, he sees a, a gradual souring on the possibilities of social reform, uh, social activism. Uh, he, sees, he ties that to the rise of premillennialism. Um, as, uh, so, so that premillennialism is, you know, how they, uh, they became premillennial because they were depressed. Uh, the rise of higher criticism with uh, disputing traditional ways, uh, traditional accounts of how Scripture was authored and what it is, um, the rise of Darwinian evolution. Um, and they reject, they reject these things. And in, 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 in Christianity, either um, the sort of the mainstream denominations in, embrace, embrace the social gospel, embrace higher criticism, um, embrace Darwin, and then the conservatives withdraw more and more and become the fundamentalists. Um, he doesn't seem to have a lot of sympathy for the fundamentalists because um, coming into the 20th century, uh, he he seems really excited by uh, in in the in his account of the sort of evangelical re engagement with culture with people uh, people like Billy Graham. Um, you know, moving out of the withdrawn, self-contained fundamentalist world, um, and seeking to sort of re-emerge into the culture to be heard, um, and this, uh, this, this, he he presents as a, as a good and positive thing, and I think this is the trajectory that he sees as you know the essentially good evangelical thing that he wishes would have been developed, and which. Uh, I think is one of the reasons why he still holds on to the term. Uh, However, uh, the culture was shifting, growing secularity, the sexual revolution, evangelicals, though more engaged with culture, still were uh, much more conservative uh, socially, and especially in their sexual mores, uh, than the culture was shifting. And so um, this gradual stance of continued reactive culture war become sort of definitive of their stance and culture. They become identified by um, the sorts of things that they're against, uh, the sorts of things that they decry. Uh, the brief little sunny spot that he seems to point to is during the George Bush years when uh, he was part of an administration that he feels did some did some good things that he's proud of, in particular uh, the AIDS initiative. Um, But, uh, as the culture became more, um, more secular, more, um, to use the term, uh, more progressive evangelicals became more reactive, felt more threatened, uh, so that when Trump shows up and is happy to speak the language of apocalyptic pessimism, um, with promises to defend uh the evangelicals who feel besieged uh they back him in droves so uh what are there any important points in that narrative that i'm leaving out
2: no i mean that's a good uh account of the particulars of it i mean in your mind you know how would you characterize it globally i mean is this a uh justification of the ways of evangelicals to man or is this a Sorry about the evangelicalism, or how would you characterize it, David?
0: Some things I think uh, we will be saying later when we bring in the the other piece that you had us read, so I don't want to step on that conversation. Though one thing that he omitted in his account, which seems sort of important, is the... Rise, especially at the beginning of the twi- in the first half of the twentieth century, uh, the rise of communism and especially the Soviet Union. Uh, he he seems he presents the uh, the fundamentalist and evangelical suspicion of of social justice, especially in terms of um, dealing with things like poverty. Uh, he, uh, he he he. Describes them as being suspicious of those things, um, by having uh, because they have left wing or progressive associations, but he never, un he 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 leaves he leaves the rise of communism completely out of it. Um, it would be as if you only told the story of the Cold War, uh, as if your your entire narrative of the of the Cold War was about McCarthyism.
2: Right. Right.
0: Um you know there there actually was you know a a pretty important political movement that was you know influencing parts of the globe that that it, that was calling for the workers to unite because they didn't have anything to lose but their chains and um you know you know those those kinds of historical that that historical element seems to be left out uh, in particular the ways in which Soviet communism um, did attempt to suppress, contain, and stamp out religion generally and Christianity in particular um, as as part of achieving its goals and it it's it's if you leave that out of the conversation, it seems as if Christians just sort of arbitrarily decided that helping people was bad when you know, there kind of was a big empire, you know, that called itself socialist and wanted to step out, stamp out belief in God. Like, like that was a thing that happened. <laughs> and it seems like an right, important right. part of the story, but it's omitted anyway.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I think sense the important
1: something. thing, I think the important thing, and he kind of, I think, skirts over this, even though he gives the history himself, is that evangelicals really do. Uh, receive or lose an enormous amount of cultural power. It's not just paranoia, but that the loss of cultural power leads to a kind of uber paranoia. So there are reasons to be paranoid, maybe, but evangelicals are more paranoid than they ought to be. That's that's right. the that's the biggest problem I had with his history. Yeah, is, is a he he gives the history correctly, but when it comes time to analyze evangelical anxiety he he doesn't follow his own history. There, there, we have reasons to be anxious, uh, just maybe not as anxious as we are.
2: Right. And I I thought it was interesting that, I mean, he draws that parallel between the early 20th century and the early 21st century in that respect, because I, I think you're right that he underplays uh, the larger conflict. But, I mean, I think that he sees that thread of self-preservation as something that, you know, doesn't suddenly arise when, you know, the 2015 pre-primary start, uh, but it's something that, you know, has a long cultural memory, really going back to the rise of, you know, German higher criticism, like David was saying, but especially in the United States context to, you know, the, the Germanization of the universities and then later on the uh, Scopes trial and the cultural fallout from that, so... You know, I I think, honestly, I mean, his account of things, and it's probably because he is a Wheaton alum writing from the inside, uh, tries to balance those two sides, right? I mean, it is uh, at the same time an account, an explanation, and it's a, I, I think it's an owning up to what's going on here. I mean, honestly, that's part of what I appreciated about this piece. Well, Michael, I mean, we, I, I can't leave it there. Uh, our listeners know this. Uh, someone like me is going, to Gerson, is going to see Gerson's pions to George W. Bush as selective memory at best. I mean, after all, the first decade of our current century saw the Iraq War, the USA Patriot Act, the beginnings of drone warfare as the latest and most perhaps insidious way to wage perpetual war without getting into the newspapers about it. There's Abu Ghraib. There's all these awful things that Gerson, I don't think he mentions. If he did, he mentioned it fast enough that I missed it. In Gerson's argument, then, what makes Trump substantially different from the George W. Bush administration? And to what extent should a grumpy old booger like me lend those distinctions some credence?
1: The biggest distinction, I think, is that Bush at least wanted to do the right thing some of the time. I don't want to impute too much to him, but I I do think he had good intentions, at least at the beginning. I don't think Trump has ever had a good intention in his entire life. Gerson talks a lot about this, this buzzword, compassionate conservatism, which even I can remember from the 2000 election, so I assume everybody else can as well. Uh, and he talks about it as an attempt to bring Catholic-esque social doctrine to American conservatism, to, to make them a little more responsible to communities and things like that. Uh, it was wrecked, he said, because the GOP in Congress uh, essentially refused to play along, and instead they pursued a kind of semi-neoliberal, semi-libertarian uh, economic policies that they pursued. I don't know enough about that to know if Bush pushed hard enough back. I don't I don't I don't have an evaluation here. But I think the fact that he even talked about the compassionate conservatism sets him apart religiously speaking from Trump. A bigger problem that Gerson doesn't even mention. He talks about geopolitical turmoil, I think is the term he uses. He doesn't mention 9/11, which uh Pretty central to the Bush administration, would yeah. you say? Yeah. yeah, I think that's fair enough. Here's my read in most eras, Bush would have been seen as a mediocre to good president. I think if he had been president in the 90s, we'd probably think of him about the same way we think of uh, his father or Clinton. but he was not president in most eras and and to be president after 9 eleven requires someone to be a great man. Bush overreacted. He listened to the wrong people, and he made a lot of really crappy decisions that obviously we're still living with. So because the times were so difficult, him being a good person wasn't enough. He would have needed to be really an incredible leader, and he, he wasn't. Um, so ultimately, I think Gerson is defending Bush's intentions rather than his actions And I think that's at least partially legitimate, although, of course, it's unverifiable. How do I know what Bush's intentions were? Um, As I said, my read is that Bush was a good man and a bad president. And I would say something very similar about Barack Obama. I don't think Trump is a good man really in any sense of that term. He doesn't have... A virtue that I can identify as a Christian virtue. And so I'm okay with Gerson's defense of Bush on those lines, if on no others. I, I certainly am not here to defend the Bush presidency, let alone the Patriot Act, let alone drone warfare or torture, or any of these other, any of the other things that you're, you're associating with the Bush administration. But as far as the, the character difference between those two guys, I think it's pretty stark.
2: What do you think, David? Am I just too grumpy?
0: I think, I think what Michael's put forward is that pretty much the 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 standard analysis for every flavor of never Trump moderate or conservative that I know, which is that regardless of proclaimed policy positions, you know, agree disagree with you know this agenda that agenda whatever. Trump has, over the course of his life, demonstrated that he is not a good man. <laughs> not by any kind of, not by any kind of
1: Christian, even cultural Christian definition. Right. I mean, somebody, you know, I think it was Joe Carter on Twitter yeah. asked if he had any virtues, and I thought about it, and he does, but his virtues are the virtues of a uh, barbarian tyrant. I mean, his, his virtues are loyalty and strength and things like this. Uh, I'm sorry, loyalty to his immediate family, you know, to the clan. And, and those are virtues under a barbarian pagan system of virtues. But it's not, they're, they're not virtues um, that I can recognize as meaningfully Christian.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, he, he's not as bad as he could be. But that's, you know, that's, that's damning with faint praise. Um, or praising
2: with faint dams?
0: Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe that's how, maybe that's how it's said. I, you know, the, he 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 is he is open about the fact that when he negotiates, he he he's playing poker. You can't trust what he says. You know, he wrote a book about it. um you know he's he's publicly said in an interview that he's never done anything his life in his life he felt he needed to ask forgiveness for, including from God, you know that
1: should have been it right like that that yeah. should have been the moment where maybe you still voted for him because you hate Clinton, but that should have been the moment it became clear you cannot defend this man on religious grounds that I mean that is right out of the Bible if anyone says he has no sin.
0: Well, yeah, that, I mean, that's the thing is like, yeah, you know, I heard some people like, oh, he's a baby Christian. I think that was Dobson's phrase. Okay. Yes. If there's one thing a baby Christian can get right, it's that you need to say, I'm sorry to God.
2: Yeah. That's some like young life camp level stuff.
0: Yeah. That's, that's like step one, <laughs> you know? So anyways, that, 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 you know, that I agree with. And, and you know, I, I, I know that, 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 that you will, you will happily um, saddle up and grab your lance to tilt with Bush era, you know, war on terror policies, Nathan. And, Every day. Right. And then
2: after I'm done with them,
0: I'm going after Clinton. Right.
1: And Obama. Don't forget Obama.
0: Right. So once I'm done... You know, I, I I know that you're you're enthusiastic you're enthusiastic about that, but I I do think there is something meaningfully meaningfully different here because we're actually talking about, um. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm yeah, a, a man that I wouldn't trust to do anything. <laughs> you know so
2: that's fair enough that's fair enough i am curious david because i mean michael just said that he doesn't publicly self-identify as evangelical
0: anymore uh do you oh yeah heck i publicly self-identify as fundamentalist so you know i am perfectly fine with it because um i i i don't mind being misunderstood because that gives me a chance to have a conversation Um, it's just not the first thing that I say, if that makes sense. Yeah, I gotcha, I gotcha. And,
2: you know, I I don't self-identify as a fundamentalist because that's a position in the field of biblical studies that I very publicly and, you know, obviously differ with. Uh, But I do call myself evangelical, I mean, largely because my social position, you know, at the college where I teach and so on and so forth, basically makes me an evangelical, even if I decide that I don't want that label. Yeah, I doubt
1: doubt I'm fooling anybody.
2: Yeah, fair enough, fair enough.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My thing, though, is, uh, you know, we might, you know, oh, can we even call ourselves that today? You know, this is a term that has meant something for a very long time in a lot of different contexts. And it won't always mean exactly what it means in the American public. For right now, um, I think you know the the call to to dump it because of whatever political associations. I think I I think that's sort of short, short-sighted. And I would like to keep "evangel" and a nice little word that means those who associate with it. I, I would like to keep that one you know in my back pocket for its true applications.
1: Eh, I don't live in any time anywhere I live now when the word means a thing that I don't associate with. I mean I respect <laughs> what you're what you're saying David. I, I get I get that approach but you know I live in 2018 the word means something.
0: Yeah well, I do want to I'll turn... oh, go ahead David. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, the word means something, but it means many things. Right? Um and I'm I'm not going to let I'm not going to let some some pejorative definition of the word evangelical be the final say on that word any more than I'm going to let you know goofy historically misinformed definitions of the word puritan um Limit my use and application of that word. I thought so,
1: Puritan just meant someone who was more conservative than you about sexuality.
0: Right. Well. Yeah, that that's that's something we can quibble about. And is, <laughs> or, humanist. is or humanist? Right. Right. Yeah, humanist. Humanist. I think <laughs> does not
1: carry the sort of baggage that evangelical does. I, I just
0: t- among I, evangelicals, I, it does. <laughs>
1: Grubbs, I, I, respect your, uh, I respect your attempt here. I, I, I respect Gerson's attempt, but to me, that word has been tainted.
2: All right, all right. Well, David, I want to turn the corner. Part of the reason I wanted to do this episode is because I've really enjoyed David French's political writing over the last several months, and his response to Gerson in the, on the uh, National Review website is no exception to that. Uh, what are French's main objections to Gerson's piece? And if you were scoring this fight, would the decision go to Gerson or to French?
0: Well, considering that only one punch has really been thrown, um, and that would be French's, uh, I, I, I don't know that it's quite a fight yet. Um, his main objection, and uh, we, can, we can supplement it, this as we go, but his main objection is is actually uh, the one that you raised, Michael, which is that uh, Gerson's account of the the evangelical mood that led up to the decision of many of them to embrace Trump to vote for Trump um, arose out of a sense of threat that Gerson does not adequately present. Um, you know, the, uh, French presents, uh, basically the, the events that evangelicals look to, to say, to, to form the, to form the judgment that, that they were in fact threatened. Um, that, uh, you know, policies were enacted, uh, under the Obama administration that, um, made a, a lot of evangelical institutions especially um fear fear for their viability um you know he took nuns to court to force them to buy you know birth control um you know to put birth control in their health plan now i don't know all the details of that but you know i remember seeing all the headlines obama trying to get nuns to put birth control in their health plans and i'm like yeah but isn't that Isn't that a problem for, like, lots and lots of reasons? Um, you know, evangelicals saw things and they responded to them. And then French says that that reaction was not, it was not a goofy one. Um, you know, whether or not they needed to get as apocalyptic as they did, that's, that's a different sort of judgment call. But Gerson doesn't represent, he thinks, fairly, um the evangelicals' own perception of, of the threat to uh, their institutions and their uh, their rights as individuals to, to live uh, as they believed they ought. Um,
1: That's the point where I wonder who Gerson is writing to. Yeah. I mean, if he's, if he's trying to tell us we don't need to be as worried as we think we do, okay, like, like that, that omission makes sense to me. But if he's trying to tell secular liberals, and I, I really don't know. The, the Atlantic has all sorts of columnists, although one fewer conservative columnists this week, um, and, and all sorts of readers. So I, I, I'm genuinely curious about who he thinks his audience is. But if, if he's talking primarily to secular liberals, uh, I, I am frustrated by that omission.
0: Well, I take one particular phrase of Gerson's in particular. Uh, he, he describes the evangelicals as... Uh, oh, where's it? I had it underlined because it made me want to throw a thing. Oh, uh, he describes them as hysteri- as having hysterical self-pity. Now, can you imagine a columnist... Using that phrase of any other demographic.
2: Well, I mean, if they're uh, <laughs> Kevin Williamson writing for the National Review, yeah, but that's probably why he got fired.
0: All right, and 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 I and I just made my point, you know. Okay, um, the uh, you know uh, undocumented immigrants from Mexico and their hysterical self-pity. Um, right. Right. You know. Uh, <laughs> the the uh yeah yeah i mean just just black lives matter mo- movement and its hysterical self pity like just just imagine applying that to any other demographic any other interest group that sees itself as threatened by some you know some move in the culture and the just the dismissiveness of that the refusal to present the sorts of things that evangelicals saw when they made what I would say is also a bad choice, and so does French. Um, and then and then to characterize it as hysterical self-pity is is uh, yeah, I, I agree with French on that point. Um, but also, you know, keeping in mind david David French is himself one who opposed uh, D- uh, Donald Trump, and the uh, one of the things he says in this article, uh, says, never trump conservatives like me. were asking our Christian friends and neighbors to make a considerable leap of faith to boycott both major party candidates and run the risk of considerable and important legal and political losses out of the conviction that the character of a leader ultimately matters more than the policies he promises. Um, the fact that he phrases it that way indicates that french actually saw the same sort of threat that the evangelicals who voted for trump for for trump did and said yes but the things that that those threats would cost us are not as bad as what we will lose if we vote for trump um, and, well and it's not and like that's that, that his gone argument away. no it's not and you know, if, if anything, it's like it's four years of a reprieve in which the cultural forces that evangelicals felt felt threatened by are just angrier and that much more vindictive.
1: Right. We're not going to and we're not going to be able. There's that we again. Evangelicals are not going to be able to claim any kind of moral high ground. Nobody's going to believe, for example, when we try to defend uh historical Christian views of sexuality at Christian colleges, nobody's going to think that's about anything other than hatred, because we have tied ourselves to such a hate, hateful man.
2: Right. And that's what's interesting. Uh, David, you used the word apocalyptic a couple times uh, during your account there. And I mean, it, it. it's interesting to me that, you know, in an apocalypse, it's often the false prophet that, you know, rings just as threatening as you know, the beast from the sea. Uh, and, you know, as we've discussed already, I mean, you know, the the fact that so many people are turning to someone, you know, who by every measurable standard is, you know, worse morally, even than Bill Clinton, is part of the, you know, just head-scratching character of this whole phenomenon, right?
0: So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah. I,
2: I I get why that there's a, whole sub-genre of these articles, right? I mean, because if you had to lay down money in 2014, you know, would evangelicals back Donald Trump if he suddenly ran as a Republican? I would have bet against it. I would have, uh, Now, my, con- my, my contract, you know, forbids me from betting, so I guess that saved me from losing money on that, but that would have been my wager.
0: Yeah. And, you know, on a, just one thing to say about French's article is that... At, pretty much everything Gerson says to the detriment of Trump and why evangelicals oughtn't to have backed him or and oughtn't to continue to back him. Um, uh, French pretty much claps, right? You know, he, he's not disagreeing with that point. Um, though, uh, his, his conclusion about evangelicals, um, that they, uh, Gerson's conclusion about evangelicals, that they have essentially sold their soul, uh, well, uh, French seems to, uh, French seems to suggest that, uh, in, in selling their souls that just then makes them more like every other, uh, every other morally bankrupt, ideological partisan group, um, It doesn't make them stand out. It just makes them blend in.
2: Right. And Michael, I mean, that's really, I mean, where I'd like to take conversation next. I mean, I think that, you know, French's piece is a damning note for American evangelicals. Uh, And it's precisely what David just said. I mean, they or we, depending on what pronoun you prefer, are neither extraordinarily deplorable, as some accounts would have it, nor extraordinarily righteous, as other accounts would have it, but, you know, they or we are just another interest group. They're just like any other interest group. So, I mean, on one level, I mean, that's so banal that, you know, French hardly, hardly needed to write it. But in another sense, I mean, I have to read it as a kind of call to repentance. So, Michael, I mean, go where you will with this. I mean, either to the banality or to the evil.
1: Evangelicalism's a big tent. Um, There are certainly people in evangelicalism who are extraordinarily evil. Um, And there are many of us who are just complacent. And there are many of us who are just so afraid that we don't act out of either faith or reason. The problem with Trumpism is it turns the complacent and the afraid into bad people. People who would otherwise have been more or less morally neutral before trump in supporting him get tied into this horrible evil i'll i'll say that system that that corrupts them and in that way i think we're all kind of in bush's position that i talked about earlier in norma, er, normal errors we could errors we could probably just skate by but history calls us calls evangelicals if evangelicals are to remain to be extraordinary and most of us are not up for that call i will fully admit i am not claiming that i am extraordinary but i'm claiming that if evangelicalism is to survive there is no middle ground anymore you're either going to be associated with this system that is responsible for a great deal of human suffering um or you're going to you're going to have to be extraordinary in the other
2: direction What would you add, David?
0: One of uh, one of his points at the uh, at the end of this article, um, and the, and this is his last his last phrase: um, Evangelicals aren't worse than other American political tribes. Instead, we're proving that in politics, we're just like everyone else. Um, one of the things that, Gerson, that Gerson's article, I think, leaves out, is he he plays up the importance of Eschatology, in its shaping of the evangelical mood, especially in its evangel the evangelical mood of political engagement, Um, just as his account of things like um, the the growing association over the twentieth century uh, between American evangelicalism and uh, capitalism versus communism, socialism, just as he leaves out you know, sort of the growth of global communism and its hostility to Christianity. Um, so he also um, does not account for the eschatologies of other ideologies. Um, that that evangelicals succumbed to apocalyptic rhetoric um, is true, but... Trump was not the only apocalyptic prophet on the market. Um, there, are, there are apocalyptic prophets on, in all corners of the political spectrum, on the right and on the left. Um, but their apocalypses, their eschatologies, um, have different ideological orientations. Um, they identify different things as the beast. They, different, they identify different things as the coming kingdom that must be pursued. Um, and that that growing, frankly, kind of manichean sense in American politics is something that's not one-sided. It's not like the evangelicals suddenly made this about the end of the world. Um, you hear that? You hear that kind of end of the world? It's literally the end of everything that's good. The world is over. Um, this must be fought at all cost, or or else we've lost everything good in the country. Um, Welcome that, to the Handmaid's
2: one, Tale. Right, right. In the in that wonderful social media sense of literally.
0: Yes. Um. Yeah. The this 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 is on all sides. All right. And that's one thing that Gerson leaves out, but French doesn't address it directly. But he he led me to think about okay, what are the ways in which Gerson's story about what happened to the evangelicals? What if that's a story that actually explains? more wings of the American electorate than just the evangelicals. Um, and uh, I think apply, applied in that way, um, not just what are, their, what are their policies, but what are their ideologies, what are their eschatologies, and what does, um, what, what does bad apocalypse look like to them? Um, all of those things are animating the, the electorate on all parts of the ideological spectrum.
2: And this is one question that I mean that that troubles me largely because I wasn't politically aware enough when I was younger, uh, but I feel like at least as long as there's been AM radio talk shows, that the apocalyptic style, since we're using that that uh, construction, uh, has been with us. So I mean, you know, it just strikes me that you know I mean when I heard Rush Limbaugh on the radio in the mid '90s uh, there was a sense that, you know, things are just diving into the trash. Uh, and then, I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, when the contested election of 2000 came around, I mean, people on both sides were, uh, and I don't want to say hysterical because first of all, it's not a word I like to use. And second of all, we've already dismissed that word in this conversation, but I mean, uh, people were genuinely troubled on both sides that, you know, if, the Supreme Court decides one way or another, things were going to be uh, catastrophic in a way that I just didn't anticipate. So, again, I mean, you know, it what the sense that I don't have, I'll put it that way, is you know, before I became politically aware, sometime in the nineteen nineties, were things in the eighties, seventies, sixties genuinely different, or are people just papering over ugliness that was there? And I mean, if that's the case then what do we do with, you know, those artifacts that people always bring up, you know, the Adams-Jefferson debates uh, that got genuinely ugly? Uh, is the How new is this?
1: What's new is that we're surrounded by it constantly. Say more. Well, I mean, the Adams-Jefferson debate, I'm sure, got ugly. I know it got ugly. We've talked about it in the past, but... It got ugly mostly in the newspapers, right? Pretty easy to avoid. Maybe people were arguing yeah. about it in the street, but I find it difficult yeah. to believe they were. But like when you're on social media in particular, it dominates your every thought. It's poisonous.
0: Yeah. Um the and and not just it's on social media, but now we carry around these little devices that are wired into the social media with us. You know, you can't sort of wander off into a field and get away with it and, and get away from it unless you leave your phone behind. And now that we're you know, now that we are as a culture cyborgs, you know, that, that becomes as implausible as people leaving their arm behind. You know. Except, you know, it's it's as if my arm was constantly, you know, reminding me of, you know, what hijinks politicians are getting up to. You know, I would probably cut my arm off at that point. This is another reason I don't have a smartphone listeners.
2: That's interesting. That's interesting. Well, guys, uh, as I told you before we started recording, uh, we are inducting our newest cohort into Sigma Tau Delta, our English department, uh, Honor Society this afternoon. So we're going to have to make this a fairly short one. So I want to take it around the horn here at the end. Uh, David, as we wrap things up, what question emerging from these essays do you think still deserves some thought? Or if these, you know, why evangelicals voted for Trump essays are played out, uh, what political question should be occupying us that these essays don't treat? And after you talk a bit, just pass that baton on over to Michael.
0: So one of the things, as I was reading, uh, as I, as as I was reading the uh, the the Gershon, uh, the gerson article he has a phrase describing you know the 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 aids initiative under george w bush and said uh, this form of evangelical social engagement was a reaction to a massive humanitarian need okay and displayed a this worldly emphasis on social justice that helped save lives all right, that that is awesome. That is great. One of the things that his essay does, though, in its characterization of the evangelical stances on the sexual revolution, um, uh, in a, in a, in a few other places, he characterizes it as that uh, they're 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 mainly just concerned with. You know these these moral these conservative moral questions and they're not dealing with this worldly life-saving issues that i think is part of the vision of a properly sourced conservatism that gerson's article leaves out which is the idea of morality and public and private virtue both as matters of this worldly and life-saving import. Um the the fact that the the private morality of individual persons including their sexual mores um is mainly an individual problem that's nobody's business um that's a thing that the sexual revolution brought us and it's an also it's also a thing that gave us you know the sort of pro the sort of president that we have um you know the, the idea that what you do uh in in the sphere of morals is itself a this worldly public value life-saving concern um is is i think part of part of the vision that evangelicals have unsuccessfully uh attempted to champion um that that I think is is something that would bear doing. Um, I think it's also the sort of thing that uh, I, I think you see young uh, young traditionally conservative evangelical thinkers um, like the guys over at Mere Orthodoxy. I think they're doing this kind of thing. They're attempting to build um, the the a kind of virtue ethic based social. Uh, social engagement thinking um, that I think Gerson's article seems to uh, leave out the possibility of, if that makes sense.
2: Michael, what do you got?
1: I got something real quick since I know you have to be on your way out. He says, there is no meaningful theological difference between creation by divine intervention and creation by natural selection. Uh, That's a massive overstatement, at best, to to just breeze through that theologically seems like a really big deal to me, and it's part and parcel with some of the other omissions he makes, where he's basically just telling the world that evangelicals are being stupid about things that may be worth thinking about more than he says. Not against evolution. I'm not saying evolution and Christianity aren't compatible, but to say there's no meaningful theological difference between those two things is absurd
2: yep yeah i mean uh, it it is a book length question at least to deal with you know the vocabularies and the methods of evolutionary biology as they relate to the faith so i'll i'll definitely back you on that one michael thank you i i know every once in a while i do that right um we'll tell you what guys i mean thank you for talking about this article with with me i uh got my copy of the atlantic and i read through this and i said this I feel like David and Michael could help me think about this, and you guys really have. Uh, and we're going to help each other think about something else next week. I'm just sure of it, aren't we, David?
0: Yep. But I haven't decided yet what.
2: David, <laughs> this is twice in a row where you
1: haven't known what we're going to talk about.
0: Well, I, yeah. Twice true. in a
1: row for you. I mean, we didn't we didn't know last week, but this is twice you've been asked to pick something.
0: I, I know, I know. Punted. It's, it's, it's terrible. I had an idea, but then I realized that it was almost exactly like the last thing that I wanted to do. And then was like, no, no, I need to branch out. But then nothing else came.
2: Well, listeners, you're just going to have to wait to find out what David Grubbs is going to think about with us next time, but I'm sure it will be good. In the meantime, you can find us on christianhumanist.org. We have a Facebook group. You can, of course, and you should leave us reviews at iTunes. Five stars are what we prefer. Uh, That is the place where most people get their podcasts, so any reviews and any ratings that we get there brings more people to the conversation, and that's ultimately what we're after. You can also email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, and periodically, as our longtime listeners know, we compile those emails that people send in, and we have a listener feedback show. So the best way to reach us really is through the email address, although certainly we're glad to hear from you in those other venues as well christian humanist podcast is part of the christian humanist radio network our press liaison is kristen philippic our intern is ellen peterson and in behalf of david grubbs and michael farmer i'm nathan gilmore saying let your sins be strong let your faith be stronger